Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Happy Easter. Yeah, come on. You can, you can happy Easter back again. Oh, come on. Easter's supposed to be at least a cheerful time, right? Did anyone get chocolate on the way in here? Yeah, some lovely melt me chocolates. Very good indeed. Did any kids get any chocolate on the way in here? Yeah, I see some hands there as well. Did anyone miss daylight savings? Did you notice it was on last? Any early birds today who really did miss daylight savings on the way? Well, if you've been up an hour earlier or maybe you took advantage of the hour sort of extra sleep and sort of went later, you're welcome nonetheless here today. Easter, I reckon Easter is one of Australia's best kept holiday secrets. So if you haven't gone away, if you haven't run away, if you haven't got away, hidden away somewhere and you have stayed around, it's a great time in the calendar year, post-Christmas, post-term one, all of those things, to slow down a little bit and to reflect and to connect again in relationship with other people. So welcome here today. In fact, on Good Friday, if you missed Good Friday, um, Good Friday, there's good that came out of a bad day on Friday. And, uh, and we kind of gathered here and we went around and if you're not familiar with the, the Bible story about Jesus, we kind of reenacted the events leading up to his crucifixion. Um, and it was a good communal time together. So if you missed it this year, why don't you put it in the diary for next year because it's kind of one of those spaces where you can, if you want to know and discover more about who Jesus is and the events leading up to this kind of Easter holiday, then you can be part of that as well. In fact, one of our men from here by the name of Keith, Keith Moyle, he's a retired gentleman who has definitely not retired. He works with a group called Prison Fellowship who basically goes into our prisons in Melbourne and he connects with uh, the inmates. And he's a listening ear um, where there's opportunity, he'll pray for those inmates. And uh, on Good Friday, um, traditionally what they do is they uh, bake biscuits and they take them into the prison. They, um, they bake biscuits, they don't put anything in the biscuits like um, bar, iron bars or power tools or anything like that. Um, And they take them in and I think our community, I didn't even know this, and I love it when I don't know things around here that are good things that happen. Um, 3,000 biscuits were baked here and he took them in and distributed them and said, hey, we just want you to know that there's people on the outside who are thinking about you on the inside and and here we are. I thought that was brilliant, brilliant thing. So that's what he was doing on on Good Friday. So that's that's a really good thing. I want to welcome you here today. You know, there's two days in the calendar in our community that kind of stand out for for the Christian calendar. There's the Christmas one um, and if you don't know too much about the Bible story or you're not a regular churchgoer kind of thing, you kind of get the hunch that it's, you've probably heard that it's about a birth of a baby by the name of Jesus. And, and then what you get is the second one which is the Easter time. And uh, the Easter time, uh, again, if you're not familiar with the Bible story or perhaps church is a new thing for you, you, most people probably have picked up along the way that it's something to do with this man Jesus growing old and dying on the Friday and then there's something that happens on the Sunday which is about coming to life again. In fact, this particular day, out of all the ones, if, if you've picked this day to come, I'm so glad because this is kind of the fulcrum in which the whole Christian faith actually rises and falls on. In fact, those early followers of Jesus would say, we believe that world history turned on this day that we remember. If there was no risen from the grave, if there was no new life, if there was none of those events that happened, then the whole thing kind of collapses like a deck of cards, which kind of makes my job kind of easy in one sense at Easter and Christmas because you kind of know what's coming, don't you? Yeah? It's a... 
Christmas, there's a birth, and Easter, there's a death, and then on the Sunday, wherever you stand, a new life, which means that the hard thing about that, so for planning, it's easy for me, right? But for actually delivering, it's hard, because if you're kind of familiar with the Jesus story, you're a follower of Jesus yourself, you can kind of tune out at this stage and go, well, I kind of know what, what kind of happened. I kind of go along with those things. However, if you're here this morning and you're kind of relaxed on the outside, but on the inside, you kind of got your arms folded to God, um, you kind of put yourself in more of the cynic or the skeptic kind of place. Um, it's very easy uh, to kind of jump ahead and I kind of know what the story is and you can turn off. And so one of the things that's challenging about this morning is that how do I actually keep you connected in, not tuning out or turning off, but actually rolling along with it? So one of the things I'm reminded of this particular day is a story about a man who was involved in a very serious car accident. And he was involved in a car accident so much so that he believed he was dead, but he wasn't, he was alive. And the ambulance took him to the hospital just to do the routine checkup. And the nurses had a hard time convincing him that he wasn't actually dead, he was actually alive. He said, no, no, I saw the accident. This is all a dream. I'm I'm dead. After some time, the nurses, they kind of gave up and they went to the doctor. And they said, can you please help us here? Because he thinks he's he's dead, but he's alive. And so the doctor came up and after some time, he got exasperated himself. And uh, he said, okay. He took a chance. He said, tell me this. Do dead men bleed? And he said, actually, no, I don't think dead men do bleed. So he took a chance, he took a scalpel and, and he made an incision and he cut the man. And he went, ow! And, and then blood started to flow. And this man looked down at his finger and he goes, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. <laughs> this morning, wherever you are on the spectrum of belief or unbelief, I'm so glad you're here because I cannot convince you of any of the things that we're going to talk about in the next few moments. But one thing I would invite you to do, whether you put yourself in the camp of the sceptic or you placed yourself in the camp of the firmly believed, would you withhold judgment for a moment and sustain yourself from jumping ahead to the end of the story and enter with me for the next 20, 25 minutes? I know that would seem like a minor miracle in itself. And would you suspend judgment no matter what part of the story you be and put yourselves once again at the beginning of the story as though it was the first time and I'm going to do that one. And what I'd like you to do is come on a bit of a journey with me pre-Sunday and post-Sunday. In the pre-Sunday, I would invite you, no matter what you know of the story about Jesus, to try and put yourself in the shoes of those first followers of Jesus, what they thought, what they might have believed, what they felt, so that you can actually track with them in part of their discovery on the way pre-this Sunday, this Easter Sunday. And then, following that, what I invite you to do is, if you like, strap yourself into a time machine. And what I'd like you to do is try and jump ahead. If you're one of those followers and you could jump ahead, you would find out and discover that in the few weeks after these events on the Sunday, there was around 120 historians, say, people who said identified as following Jesus. But then if you strapped yourself into a time machine and jumped 350 years ahead of these events of AD 30... And you were in the time of Constantine when he was ruling the Roman Empire, you would discover to your astonishment and amazement that one in two people who lived in the Roman Empire actually believed and confessed that Jesus 
was their king who they pledged allegiance to. Staggering. If you're a marketing person here today, or if you're a financial person, you'll be crunching the figures very quickly. That's 40% growth year on year from 120 to what came to be 33 million out of the 600 million estimated in the Roman Empire. Rodney Stark, a sociologist and historian, he jumped in before he believed any of these things and, and just crunched the figures. And as a sociologist, he wrote a book, The Rise of Christianity, and he asked the question, how on earth could you rationalise growth from 120 to 33 million in just about 320 years? If you jumped in a time machine again and jumped forward to our time, 2015, you would discover that there's one in three citizens in our global citizens in our world who would say in some shape or form, somewhere along the continuum, I actually believe that Jesus is the king of my life and the king of this world. Staggering. From very such rudimentary beginnings, a peasant Jewish carpenter on the outskirts of the Roman Empire could actually amass such a following that now one in three global citizens would identify with him in some shape or form. So what I'd like you to do today, wherever you sit on this continuum, is to ask yourself, what is the most reasonable reason for these things happening and occurring? Is that okay? Is that all right? Wherever you are on the continuum... Oh man, I'm so looking forward to this. I can see you all are as well. (laughs) More Easter eggs to go around. All right, let's make a start pre-Sunday. If you can try and put yourself in the place of one of those early followers of Jesus who lived with him, who followed him, who saw his brutal crucifixion. And then along the way, there's three boxes I want to cover. If this is true, what are the implications for people like you and me and for our world. And there's three of them. There they are. One, two, and three. All right, ready to go? Let's jump in. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. This is Luke who's writing this. This is Luke writing only 30 years after the events. And he's rubbed shoulders with guys like Paul, who've seen Jesus come back to life. He's rubbed shoulders with eyewitnesses of these events and he's writing them down like a methodical doctor, scientific document, recording these events. These are reliable, at least, sources that tell about these events. And he writes, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. These women were taking spices because they were doing what Jewish people would do when it came to burial. There were two stages of burial. The first one was that you would lay a body in a communal tomb. And in the communal tomb, you would wrap them and embalm the body with spices because when other bodies were laid there, you didn't want to be repulsed by the smell and so they would wrap them and embalm them. And then when the embalmment happened, decay of the body had taken place, you would go back in for the second stage of the burial. You would collect all of the bones and put them in a box, what's known as an ossuary, and you'd do a second burial. That was the final. So these women weren't expecting anything in particular. They were doing the thing that they knew they needed to do and to prepare the body. 
But when they got there, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. So they first automatic conclusion wasn't something's happened. They pondered and wondered. In fact, Jesus at multiple times had said to them, I will rise back to life again. But they didn't understand what this meant. In Jewish culture at that particular time, the Jewish people had broken up history into two segments. The first segment was the present age and the second segment was the future age. The future age was the time they longed for when God would come to this world, this planet, and liberate the Jewish people and he would bring his peace and his restorative power and justice to this world. There would be no more tears, no more sickness, no more fighting, no more persecution, The world would be transformed, bringing God's love and justice to it. And that included the judgment to come. But they believed that in that particular time, there would be a resurrection of bodies and that all the righteous or the right people, God's people, would be with him. They had no understanding or idea that Jesus was the one who would actually set those things into motion that the future would break forth into the present and start to recreate a new world right here, right now, available for all. So they took the burial spices and they were wondering, what does this particular thing mean? What they do is they come back from the tomb and they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. Now, can I hit pause for a moment? If you're a woman here today, could I just simply apologise? Men often get it wrong. Is this true? Man. Men, do men often get it wrong? All right. You see, back in that time, in that particular day, in that age, a woman's woman's testimony was not considered to be valid. In fact, it was considered to be disreputable. If you were trying to prove something, you would not actually ask a woman to be a witness or testify because their testimony did not count. If Luke was writing a story to try and convince people of these events, the natural thing in his day and age would not to include a woman's account. The only reason why we can account for these women's names being in here in this particular place and Luke referring to them is because they were the first ones who actually went to the tomb on that day and discovered these things. And it says that when they came back, they didn't believe them because their words seemed to them like nonsense. For a first century Jewish person to believe that this man who they'd seen brutally crucified and buried in a grave, dead and buried in a grave, the last thing on their minds was that he would come back to life again, that there would be some kind of change, that there would be some kind of difference. And that was their estimation and their expectation was a zero. Goes on and says this, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Whatever this body was that Jesus was in, it was both a real body and a ghostly one. If you were Dr. Spock, you'd say something like this. It's a body, Jim, 
but not as we know it. You see, Jesus had a body that could be touched and felt. He ate fish and it was broiled and he could appear in rooms and disappear. What kind of body is this? It's a body, but unlike anything else we've known. Let me try and get it this little bit closer. My first car when I grew up was a HD Holden, a HD Holden. This was it. This was my pride and joy. In fact, it wasn't this kind of bluish. What would you call that? Bluish? Bluish. Someone will tell me it's wrong. It was the rustic one. Cam, do you remember this? This was just a, I know, a Toyota thing. All right. Anyone here a Holden fan along the way? Because this was my first car. And it had the two-tone thing happening. And the beauty of this car is that you could drive, literally drive down the freeway. And it had the bench seat. All right. So you could actually sidle on over to the middle of the bench seat and you could hold the steering wheel with one arm and there was this thing called rocker. That means you could actually pull the steering wheel from here and there and the wheels would still be straight. Yeah. They had this old-fashioned thing called rocker. So you could kind of go along the, the highway like this in the middle of the bench seat looking really cool and you could put your arm around a beautiful babe, Bronwyn, and look really cool driving along the road, right? This was my first car. I loved it. JJK636, not that I remember. It was my pride and joy. But if you had said to someone in 1965 when this car was first manufactured and built and put on the roads, let me show you what it's going to be like in a few decades' time and produce this car, the latest Z series, Holden V6 Commodore, they would look at it and they would probably say, it's a car, Jim but not as I know it. I mean, is it a car? It's got wheels. It looks like a car. It feels like a car, but it's different to anything else I could imagine. On that first day when Jesus seemingly appeared to his followers, it was a body, but not quite as they knew it. It was physical and yet it was glorified. It was, it was heavenly and yet it was earthly. It was something unique and different like anything else. So that's why they looked at it and said, is it a ghost? Is it a man? It's Jesus. I can put my fingers in his hands where the nails were. It's Jesus. He talks to us. He reminds us. It's him. But it's unlike anything else. What are the implications? Box one. Implication is this. If the resurrection is real, God loves us as wholes, not just as souls. If you are a Greek-speaking person that bought into the philosophy of the Greek-thinking world, this was so radically different to anything else you would ever imagined. The Greek world believed that the body was bad, the philosophy, and that the spirit was good, and that the goal and destiny of humanity was to liberate your spirit from your body so you could be set free from it. Jesus, in his resurrection, simply defined and clarified that matter matters to God. And that this world is of infinite worth and value and so are you as your whole. God loves you as a whole, not just as a soul. Which means this, if you have been stained and shamed and hurt and wounded, it means that there is a God who loves and values you so much so that he wants to heal, he wants to restore, he wants to cleanse he wants to wash clean. He wants you to know that he loves you as a whole. For people who have been grown up 
and, and they've experienced frailty, that they've experienced suffering, that they've experienced pain for those early followers to get hold of what this meant is that there is a new Mark II body along the way. And it's, it's like the body we knew, but it's different. It's a liberated one of decay and disease. This spelt bad news for the people who did wrong things in their flesh, in their body, because it meant that one day God would call them to account for how they lived in the flesh, a physical judgment. But it also meant simultaneously that the people who followed Jesus believed that their, their bodies, their earthly bodies now were vessels of his love and mercy and his grace so that they now lived to use their body to please him because he so loved those bodies that he chose to recreate Jesus anew in a flesh. Friends, it seems that God loves people as wholes, not just as souls. In fact, the very first message that resonated from that Easter Sunday that came through was a simple message that went something like this. To the people who saw these events, they went out and told people and they said, you know what, you've killed Jesus you put him in a grave. We've seen him come back to life. So you better repent and change your attitude about him because he is the rightful king and boss of this world. And if you place your trust in him, he will forgive you, come and live in you, wash you clean, and you can become part of God's family. In Acts chapter 2, the very first time that Jesus had said, I want you to wait for a power that I'll release into this earth, the power of my spirit being poured out onto all humanity and flesh. Wait for that, that first day on the steps of the temple, 40 days after these events. It, it, it so happened that those events that Jesus spoke about occurred. And the very first message that resonated from those discouraged lips was simply this. You crucified Jesus. You put him in a tomb. We saw him come back to life again. Change your thinking about him because life has been breathed afresh into this world and it's available for you. Here's what the one in Acts chapter 3. They've just witnessed a miraculous event. Peter and John have been walking to the temple. They see a man who's been begging and asking for money. They say to him, silver and gold, we don't have any, but what we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus and his life walk. And he did. And, and, and when they're trying to explain these events, this is what Peter said. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus you handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the prince of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. The testimony from the grave out into the countryside was that this man Jesus has come back to life and he's alive and he's alive in me. You see, the Prince of Life breathes fresh new life into this decaying world and offers life. You see, that's our insight number two. Wherever you stand on the spectrum, whether your arms are folded to God or whether they're willing and open and saying, come, this is one of the implications of a resurrection. That God's fresh saving power, his new life is present and available for all. I've often sat with people who have moved from a place where they say, I don't believe in God at all, to a place where they say, we want to follow Jesus. 
We've explored, we've discussed, we've pulled things apart, we've wrestled, we've tried to place all of our faculties around this person and try and wrestle with him and and who do we say that he is? And they've come to a place where they say, I want to follow you. I remember one particular couple, they said this to me, they said, you know what, life's going really well for us right now so we actually want to make a commitment to following Jesus. I said, well, why is that right now? They said, well, because there's some more cynical people that we might know that would just think that it's only in times of hardship when things are going well and suffering that people turn to God and they find that he's a a useful crutch. We we want our friends to know that actually we're at at a time of joy and celebration in our life and what we'd like to do is come to a place where we invite Jesus into our life. And so we did. Right there and then we prayed and we invited Jesus to come into their life that he was their king, to thank him for being their liberator, their forgiver, their life giver. A few weeks afterwards, I I said, you know, do you notice any difference in your life? And they said this. They said, you know what, as a result of when we prayed, it was like something new was released into us and we saw life differently. The wife chipped in and she said, you know, I find my view of people is changing. I said, how so? She said, just in the very small practical ways. She said, I'm in a queue now at Coles and and I'm lining up and if someone pushes in, I don't get half as upset. In fact, I might be the kind of person who says, oh, why don't you come in in front of me? Uh, Why don't you come in in front of me? Which is really frustrating for people like me who've done all the shopping, right? And you just want to go through the queue and it's great. It's probably a Christian in front letting all the other people in, yeah? Just, I just want to pay for my stuff and get through, Yeah. She said, our perspective has changed. If you asked a person back then and even now, all the way up into 2015, what Jesus' difference makes in their life, they would conclude by saying this, it might be different for every different person, but I can tell you this, he is alive. And he is alive in me. God's fresh saving power, his new life is present and available for all. Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Risen Sunday. Let's jump ahead. This is our post. Post Sunday. How do we account for the fact that 120 people to 33 million to one third of the world's population? I mean, how do you account for that? What is the best rationale and insight for such staggering and phenomenal spread of these one man's words? 2,000 years ago. When I was growing up, I was at primary school and yes, my mother was kind enough to send me to primary school. And I remember when I was in grade six year, I started something at the primary school that kind of caught on. It was a group of friends. It was a small group of us. We found that we had these things called marbles, not in our heads, but we actual physical marbles. I I went to my granddad and he gave me some of his old-fashioned marbles and so we got together as a small cluster of guys and we started to play this old-fashioned game, marbles. What we didn't realise that it was going to actually catch on. And so after a few months of playing marbles in which you would exchange marbles, win and lose marbles, try and find marbles, we found that on any given lunchtime, about half the entire school was up on the bitumen basketball court playing Marbles. It just caught on and spread like wildfire. In fact, a few years after I left my primary school, I bumped into one of the ex-students who followed on after me and he said, yeah, yeah, 
you guys were the ones who started that marbles. I said, yeah, that's right. He said, actually, it was still going. I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, years after you left, the, the marbles kept on going, but one day it was stopped. I said, why is that? He said, because there was a whole group of boys that would stand up one end and they would get their marbles and do a very unlike boy thing. They would start to throw them at people. So it got too dangerous. Could you imagine that, guys doing that? Young primary school boys doing stuff like that. Could you imagine that? And so they shut the whole thing down. I said, what happened? He said, no more marbles. That was it, banned. That's really sad. It's banned for the whole thing. When you asked a follower of Jesus who lived in the first century, when Rome decided to ban Christianity from being spoken about and practised, they didn't stop. They kept going. In fact, in AD 64, when Nero decided to try and hook the burning of Rome onto someone else and to appease the masses, he actually decided to pick on a small group of people that he could play with to try and entertain the people and distract them from what was going on. So what did he do? He decided to gather those followers of Jesus, those Christians, the people of the way, and he would make sport of them. It said for a number of weeks and months, he would take humans, impale them on stakes, roll them in bitumen, light the torch so that you could light up the promenade on the way to the games. At the games, he would take men, women and little children. He would actually put animal skins on them and allow the wild beasts to have their way. But even then, when those people said, we will not change what we believe, they still headed on, they would not refuse even death itself because they believed that Jesus was not only alive in them, but the story and the witnesses were credible and that they believed that he was their true Lord, that they would give their allegiance and honour You see, the third insight that they held so dearly with them was simply this. In Jesus, you do not have to fear death. You can get on with life because the best is yet to come. In Jesus, you don't have to fear death. You can get on with life because the best is yet to come. To come. They believed that because what was true of one man, Jesus, could become true of them, that if he rose to new life again and got a new, real, physical body, that not only do they matter as wholes to God, not only is his new life being released into them and to this world, but that indeed there was one thing that the world couldn't offer that he could that came in spades. And it was hope. That there is a hope beyond the grave For those people that have suffered and pained in this life, this isn't all there is. There's more and yet to come. In fact, this isn't the full state of your reality. In fact, the future holds. And all those people that decide and say, God, I believe in who you are. I believe in your son, Jesus. They'll be saved from the judgment to come and they will be able to experience a glorious new day in which there is hope that fuels this life beyond the grave. I heard a story about a man who walked up a hill one day to notice that there was an oak tree sitting at the very top of it. Under that oak tree, as it proceeded to the top of the hill, he noticed that there was a 
gravestone, sitting solitary alone by itself, facing the sun. He walked up to that gravestone and he noticed the person's name written on it. And on the only word on the epitaph that said, carved in stone just below the name, was simply the word, waiting. 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 Because they believed that in Jesus, not only was the best yet to come, but in the future there is hope. In the present there is hope. And this is not all there is. And so they can get on with living because they do not fear death. Because the best is yet to come. Band's going to come up in a moment. We're going to finish with the song. But I want to ask you this today. Wherever you stand on the spectrum, and I can't convince you either way, it seems that from the very beginning of this Easter Sunday, a change was about to embark and hit and impact our world, which the whole of the Christian life wrestles on and nestles on like a fulcrum. A fulcrum in history. A fulcrum for our world. A fulcrum for our lives. And it's on this fulcrum everything can change. There's a God who loves you as a whole, not just as the soul. Your body is important to him. He loves it. He values it. He wants to restore it. One day he will, says Jesus. But right now, he can breathe fresh new life into you. Because it's what God was doing through Jesus. Breathing fresh new life by his spirit into this decaying and broken world. So that all those who place their trust and faith in him would carry hope. reaches into eternity. No wonder they called it good news. Good news. Jesus said these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Then he asks them a question. Not what do they think. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think is the best reason for pre-Sunday not expecting anything and post-Sunday everything changing? What do you think is the best account and most reasonable reason for one third of our entire world's citizens. Brutal deaths, imprisonments and beatings because they would not and they refused to say otherwise that Jesus, risen, was alive in them. Hope was on the way. And they had heard and spoken and seen people who'd seen him in the flesh. Free and hope. If you are here this morning and 
Resurrection Sunday for you is a time, a sign of liberation and nail your colours to the flag, celebration and joy. And as we sing this song, why don't you go ahead and sing with courage and cheer. Maybe you're here this morning. Jesus has been far from you, just been scratching around the edges of church life or any of that. But for you here today, you realise you've never really answered that question but you want to answer that in the affirmative today. And I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to pray. And if you want to join with me, this is kind of like a prayer that would ignite and start something for you to say, you know what, what and who you've claimed to be, I want to choose to believe in that and I want you to come into my life and I want to know that change for me. If that's for you, then as I pray, would you pray with me? And ignite and start something with Jesus. Stretches into eternity. Making commitment. So I want to follow you. I want you to be my king. Because I too believe with your followers that you have risen from the dead. You want to pray with me? Please do so. God, I want to thank you for sending your son Jesus. I want to thank you for dying for me, for forgiving me, paving a way and purifying me that I can be washed clean. I confess to you my wrong and sin and I ask you to forgive me now. Jesus, thank you for rising to life. Thank you rising to life for me so that what's true of you can become true of me. I place my trust in you. I believe that you rose to new life. And now will you come by your spirit and live in me. I thank you in your name. Amen.